and it's a different trail. It's not the spot that I started from. I'm like, how could this be? Am I going to go left? Am I going to go right? I have a 50-50 chance of being right. I'm Rebecca Huntington, and you're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, with support from the Community Foundation of Jackson Hole. Backcountry Zero is a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. You can support this project and Teton County Search and Rescue volunteers by making a donation today. You can donate online at www.tetoncountysar.org donate. You can also support The Fine Line by sharing this podcast with friends and family, especially if they're heading into the backcountry. In October of 2012, Paul Dunker met up with friends for a fall hunt in the heart of the Grovant Mountains. When Paul didn't return to camp that night, his friends called Search and Rescue just a little before midnight. Early the next morning, Search and Rescue volunteers fanned out across the dry Cottonwood Creek drainage. But as they looked for Paul, they didn't find a single clue. My name is Paul Dunker. I've lived here for 22 years now. I had a bunch of friends that used to hunt a lot. I never hunted as a kid or with my family or anything. I just started uh, maybe eight or 10 years ago. Basically, it was my poker buddies talking about hunting all the time and eventually invited me along. Maybe the second year I actually owned a rifle, the first couple years I would borrow a friend's. So I hadn't been hunting very long. Just before you get to Gunsight Pass, about maybe 25, 30 miles up the Grovant was where our camp was that year. A couple of people had cab over campers on their trucks. I was I just had a topper in my truck and a sleeping bag in the back. Actually, two sleeping bags, one inside the other because it was pretty cold. <laughs> my friends had gone up there on Friday evening and went up to the top of the pass and scoped it out with binoculars and kind of planned the hunt. I didn't get up there till well after dark. Actually, I had never seen the terrain that we were going to hunt in, which was the whole problem. <laughs> Hunted uh, up the Grove Hunt there for a couple of years, but uh, I had never been up to this particular spot before. We got up uh, before sunrise, probably about five o'clock in the morning and had a quick cup of coffee, slapped together a couple of PB&J sandwiches and uh, drove up to the top of the pass. There was four of us. We split into two two-man groups, and uh, hiked from there. Uh, it was me and my friend Mike Ward, and the other two were uh, Brian Goldberg and uh, Eric Lovinger, and Eric is from uh, Oregon. He had a Wyoming elk tag and came out from Oregon to hunt. Mike and I were both sharing uh, my walkie-talkies, which naturally had dead batteries in them and uh, didn't get charged all the way the night before, so they crapped out pretty early on. We hiked from the top of where you can park at the top of Gunsight Pass down towards the base of the pass, kind of split up there. And this is where I made the fatal miscalculation that affected me the whole entire day. Because it was dark and I had not been up there before, I thought that when we hiked first thing in the morning before sunrise, I thought we went through Gunsight Pass to the other backside of the ridge we didn't actually. We went to the base of Gunsight Pass and then turned and uh, and side-hilled without going through the pass. And this was just because I had not been up there the night before. I I assumed that we went through the pass for some reason. Was it a dark morning? Yeah, there was no moon or anything. It was pitch black. 
both Mike and I were hunting on in one kind of hillside and we split up individually too and we're going to walk down this hill get together again at the bottom and along the way I actually heard an elk bugling so that took me in a whole nother direction because I started chasing after the animal that I knew was there eventually lost the animal and uh, by that point uh, I couldn't get Mike on the walkie-talkie anymore because the batteries had died so maybe 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at what point did you realize you were lost or turned around Later, I mean, much later, because I, like, I thought I knew where I was, and I had a topographic map with me. Naturally, being the first hunt of the year, not only did I not check my uh, walkie-talkies for fresh batteries, but um, I kind of packed in a real hurry. It was the first time out the door, and I was already later than everyone else. And I left my one compass in my ski pack, not in my hunting pack. So I had a great map, but no compass. And my cousin of mine had like after this whole experience happened, you know, uh, I think it was on Facebook, uh, posted like, well, why don't you just use the compass on your phone? Not only did I not know my phone even had a compass, but there was no cell phone service anywhere up there. So I didn't even bother bringing a phone with me. When did you start to get concerned or did you even get concerned? I didn't get concerned till much later in the day because I kind of thought I knew where I was. I was hunting, you know, on my own through the afternoon and, uh, it was also a completely cloudy and overcast day and snowing off and on. So you couldn't really look up at the sky and see where the sun was. There might be a light spot in the clouds, but is that the sun or is it just a thin spot in the clouds and the sun is somewhere else? So I was completely had no idea which way north, south, east, west was. But I had a topographic map and just, I guess, by coincidence, a lot of the terrain that I was in, I kept on checking the map and you can see Gunsight Pass for quite a while. I knew where that was. The terrain I was in seemed to match the topographic map I had, so I I really thought I knew just exactly where I was for most of the day. The big problem came when I decided to go back to the trucks, back to where I had started. So what I did was I could see Gunsight Pass. Since I thought I had hiked through there in the dark, and I actually hadn't, I hiked through it in the other direction, thinking I was going back the right way. And that actually took me north into the kind of vast area that I trudged around in for the rest of the night. I thought I had gone through the pass and I was going back to where I started. But instead, I uh, never got through the pass until I walked through it on the way that I thought was home. It was starting to get dark at that point. And what I had done, I'll mention this topographic map again. I mean, even to double check it, there's a an old drill hole up there, which is clearly marked on the map, like a man-made drill hole from oil exploration many years ago. I was like, I got to find this drill hole. And if I find the drill hole, I'll know exactly for sure where I am. Well, I followed the topographic map to where the drill hole was supposed to be. And right where the drill hole was supposed to be, of course, it was on the other side of the ridge, but there was the remnants of a small log cabin right there. So I just figured, okay, they built this little enclosure around the wellhead or the drill hole. So I am in the right spot. So I kept on going in the direction that I thought was going to take me back. Actually, at that point, I was uh, far enough away from the pass, but on the map, I was getting closer to actually where our camp was. So my intention was to get to the backside of the ridge where the camp was and go over the top of the ridge. And I would 
see our camp and I would just walk back to camp rather than go all the way back to uh, where our car was. When it started getting dark, I mean, I'm on a trail, I'm following a trail, it's on the valley floor next to a creek. So it's an established trail that was pretty easy to follow. And I knew that it's a little dangerous as far as getting lost goes to get off of this trail, but I think my camp is on the other side of this ridge, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna climb up this ridge and look from the top, but I wanna make sure I don't get lost. So I picked a landmark in the trail it was snowing off and on all day, and the snow was melting then as it hit the ground and warmed up. But there was a, a round mud hole that had a layer of ice on top of it. Maybe it was four foot in diameter. And the snow that had fallen on that round ice didn't melt. So it was basically a round white circle in the middle of the trail. Great landmark. You could see it from anywhere. Okay, there's my landmark. I'm going to hike up to the top of the ridge and look over and see if my camp is there. Where we were camping, there was a little pond right next to it, so it was really easy to see from above. Even if you couldn't see any vehicles, you could obviously see the pond. I get to the top, I look over, and there's just miles and miles of undulating mountains and nothing looks familiar at all. I walk down the ridge one way to look, I walk down the ridge the other way to look. Like, well, I'm completely lost now. I'm going to just go backtrack and go back the way I came. I only found this out on Google Earth. There's a feature on Google Earth where you can turn off the aerial photo of the vegetation and just look at a topographic map underneath it. And that ridge top actually was Y-shaped. So when I went down one leg, then I turned around, walked back down the other leg, I walked onto the other leg of the Y. Looked down the hill. There's a trail at the bottom with a round white circle. I walked down to the round white circle of ice And it's a different trail. It's not the spot that I started from. I'm like, how could this be? I clearly picked out this landmark, walked back down, and I was on a completely foreign trail. So at that point, I just was like, I don't know. It is a trail. It goes somewhere. Am I going to go left? Am I going to go right? I have a 50-50 chance of being right. Naturally, I picked the wrong 50%. And I just started following that trail. What had actually happened was uh, I was on the same trail, but I was further down than where I started from. So it was an area I had never seen before. And it was another round, white, frozen mud hole in the trail. It was another exactly same round, white circle in the trail that I, uh, I found. So I followed that trail along, and it's getting darker and getting darker. And I'm in the valley floor, and I knew that... Uh, As long as I'm back there following this creek, I'm not going to get out of the backcountry. It was probably 5.30 or 6 in the morning, getting ready for a first light. I just remember scrambling to get my stuff together and heading up to the Grovants. My name is Jess King, and I'm a member of Teton County Search and Rescue. I rode up with the incident commander, Tim C. O'Carlin, and... He was doing what NEIC does, which is being on the radio, on the phone, trying to get all the details he can as we drive up there. You're sort of gathering information as you go. And so we didn't know a lot about it, except that this hunter was overdue. He hadn't returned to his camp with his friends the prior evening. So we were heading up there to look for him. You know, hunters are pretty well prepared and they're used to being off trail, but it's a very remote and large area. There's definitely concerns about 
grizzly bears. We were also concerned because the weather was changing. It was your classic fall weather where it was cool. The first snow of the season was coming in, so it was kind of that rainy snow. We went up uh, just about the top of the pass and set up our incident command post there. I saw another kind of uh, canyon that, or valley that uh, had a trail at the bottom that intersected with the one that I was on. I decided to follow a trail there, forked off the one I was on because I thought it might take me out. My name is Alex Norton. I'm a member of Teton County Search and Rescue. I refer to Gunsight Pass, just kind of the, the black hole of the Grove on hunting. You've got three to five drainages coming off of a single point. And if it's foggy or rainy and snowy, like Jess was saying, you might have no idea. And it all probably looks and feels the same until, you know, two hours later, you're not where you thought you were going to be. The way that we approach it is to take the information that we've got, look at the conditions and do sort of a, a consensus exercise about uh, what direction we think he went off the top of that and which drainage we think he's headed down. And then we make a plan to uh, distribute our resources based on kind of the probability that he's in the various drainages, depending on, you know, the clues that we've got at, at that time. And we start pulling out of all, all of our topo maps and laying them out turned out to be a really large search area because of what Alex was saying, that it's this top of this ridge or the top of this point that leads into several drainages and, and he could have ended up in any of these drainages. So I remember the incident commander, Tim, talking about, okay, we're going to get um, SAR teams going in on foot, but then we're also going to bring in dog teams to um, smell and sniff the area. We'll bring a helicopter in to search from the air. Um, we might get Civil Air Patrol involved. It, the scale of it was so large that we really need to pull a lot of different types of resources to try and cover that large area. My day job is uh, I work for the, the county planning department and at the time of this rescue, Paul was on the county planning commission, which means that, you know, Paul and I see each other, you know, once a month or twice a month at planning commission meetings. And so it's always a little different when you find out that the person that you're searching for is somebody that you know. Eventually, I came across a closed Forest Service road. There were trees growing up through the road, but it was obviously a two-track road that vehicles could drive down at one point. And I just figured this road goes to somewhere, goes to another road, goes to another road, goes to another road. So I started following that road out, and that's how I wound up uh, 27 miles from where I started. I just followed that road, and that road was going completely the wrong direction. But it was going towards civilization, so I figured it was my safest way out. It was dark at this point. It's easy to follow a road. Kept walking through all kinds of fields, and uh, there was evidence that, you know, that area was used. There was maybe a piece of trash on the ground or a ribbon tied around a tree where somebody had marked uh, where to get to their elk kill or something. And there was horse uh, footprints. And, and eventually, uh, I could actually see uh, planes landing at the Jackson Hole Airport from where I was. So I knew I was going towards, you know, uh, civilization, but uh, also knew I probably wasn't going to make it out that night since I'd been walking for miles and miles and miles. And uh, it was dark for several hours already. So I made a little campfire right next to the road, sort of laid down to uh, wait out the night. Did you have any food and water left? 
I did not have any water, but there was plenty of creeks up there. I Luckily, I didn't get Giardia or anything afterwards. I was just drinking out of the creeks. And I had a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich <laughs> for food. You uh, slept you know, from like 1 to 5? Or... I stopped hiking about probably 10 o'clock at night. Did you have a bear spray? Were you worried about bears or other I had wildlife? bear spray um, and I had a rifle, you know. So I wasn't tremendously concerned, although in my wanderings that day, I did see my buddy's footprints in the mud from the night before, which had then been snowed over. The ground had frozen and then it got snowed over. And then I saw grizzly bear tracks on top of the snow, on top of their footprints. So there's definitely grizzly bears around there. And actually some of the searchers uh, saw a mother and a two cubs the next day when they were looking for me. I just knew I had to be vigilant. The snow came in, which definitely would have covered up any footprints, things like that. I don't remember finding any wrappers of food or clothing items. I remember the feeling of looking and looking and feeling a little bit discouraged that we had nothing to go off of, you know, and we put so many hours in and there was just nothing, no evidence of him, um, which makes you start to worry about him too, that maybe he's um, somewhere beyond where we initially thought. I mean, the only clues that would, would come in are, we see a herd of elk, maybe he was over in this area hunting. So I figured I might see somebody coming out the next morning, another hunter. So I camped right next to the road. And uh, as soon as I first heard the first car, I got up and, uh, and tried to hitchhike with the guy. He was going into uh, the area to hunt and actually tried to convince me to, uh, to hunt with him because he said he knew where there was a big bull that he'd seen the day before and he wanted help carrying it out. And I was like, no, I just have to get back to camp and tell my friends that I'm still alive. So I didn't go with him. But then another guy came by who was actually, I guess, leaving from his hunting camp early the next morning. He gave me a ride and he said, oh, we're, we're really not that far from the highway. And I said, highway? What, uh, what highway would that be? Like I thought maybe it would be just further down the Grovant Road, which is no highway. It's a dirt road. But then he told me uh, it would be the highway that goes over Togedy Pass. So I had hiked all the way from way up the Grovant to slightly off of Togedy Pass. I was pretty amazed that I had made it that far away. And the, the, um, this other hunter says, oh, your friends must be worried sick about you. What's your friend's number? I'll call him up right now because I hiked into cell phone service. And I said, I, I have no idea what his phone number is. I, I push his name on my phone and it calls him. I don't know. I don't even know what area code his phone number is. So I, I couldn't I couldn't call him in any way. He dropped me off at the, uh, there's an RV park up there. Um, it has a little gas station there. And the gas station was open. There was only one person working there who uh, said, if if there was another employee there, she would have driven me all the way back to my camp, but instead, uh, you know, gave me a cup of coffee and a bowl of chili and let me use their phone. I, I called up a cab to come get me from town and drive me back to my hunting camp. That's the only thing I could think of. How could I get back there as fast as possible? I mean, I couldn't just go home and call them because there's no cell phone service up there. I had to physically get back to my camp to tell everyone that uh, I was okay. They were able to go to the very uh, high point and get a text message out. It wasn't enough for a phone call, but it was enough for a text message. And then 
Brian must have texted somebody who's part of Search and Rescue. We had, I, we had about four or five friends that were on the team at that point, so I think he just texted one of them. It was probably around uh, 11 in the morning by the time the cab came to get me. He, he had to come all the way from town up to Buffalo Valley to get me and then drive me all the way back to my hunting camp. And it was a brand new Cadillac Escalade SUV. So going up the uh, ruddy, muddy Grovant roads, that guy was going about 15 miles an hour at the most. He was trying not to scratch the paint on his car. So it took forever to get there. And as we're driving up the road, I see this yellow helicopter flying around overhead. And I just remember thinking, God, I hope that's not for me. But I absolutely knew that it was for me. And by the time I got to uh, our hunting camp, there was a full-on rescue with four hasty teams of two people on ATVs driving around looking for me. They had dogs sniffing my sleeping bag to get my scent. They were looking for me. And there was a helicopter flying around looking for me. Yeah, it was a little, a little embarrassing. We are trying to get the helicopter to come and help us search. It was having trouble coming up because the weather was moving in. It started to snow and it was foggy. Um, and I remember the helicopter just arriving just as this black Suburban that has a taxi light on top of it driving up the Grovant Road. And that's like a two hour drive from town. So all of us are sitting here thinking, what in the world is a taxi doing in the middle of the mountains? And sure enough, it pulls up and we all kind of step aside from the mission. The driver gets out and he looks at his completely mud-covered rig. And then sure enough, out of the back steps Paul. And he had taken a taxi from the Hatchet Resort all the way around to Gunsight Pass. And it turned out he had hiked from the point where he had gotten lost. Like Alex said, he hiked downhill following drainage until he hit a two-track road. And he decided, I'm just going to follow this two-track road until it gets me to a bigger road. And sure enough, it took him 20-some miles to the Hatchet Resort. My friend did exactly the right thing. There's a million different things that could have happened to me. And actually, I have to say that uh, where we started from, where my hunting camp was, they got about five inches of wet, heavy snow that night. I didn't get any of that. It wasn't even that cold where I was. I walked into a whole nother weather system than they were in. So they were really worried about me and I was much better off than, uh, than they were on that side of the hill. Just knowing where you're going before you go. And I just counted on my friends who had all seen it and, you know, had worked out a plan the night before, but then I lost them early on in the day and I was on my own without ever expecting that that would be the case. Um, I've I've told this story to numerous people and I got two distinct reactions. About half of them say, what a dumbass you are. How could you have gone out there? How could you have done all this stuff and got yourself that lost? And the other half say, you know, you spend enough time out in the backcountry, whether you're hunting or you're skiing or you're hiking or whatever, you're going to spend a night out sooner or later. It's just, you do it enough, that's kind of inevitable, so... Yeah, I had a, you know, like an emergency blanket, reflective blanket, and I had cigarette lighters with me that I could light a fire and 
I had some food. I had some water. I didn't have my water filter, but it uh, turns out the creek was okay. Yeah, just be more prepared. A lot of people like to go really lightweight, but I, I leave with a full pack now every time with extra backups of everything, you know, extra headlamp, extra batteries, you name it. The very first thing I did was go out and buy that three or four more compasses and just put one in every pack that I own and never take it out so you always have it. And I also got myself a GPS locator, <laughs> which I thought was a good purchase after that. You should put your pack together a couple of days before you're going to go, not just a, an hour before you're going to leave. You can't find something, you're going to just leave it home. That's really what it's about is just being prepared and having the right equipment with you. When I finally did get back to camp, which, like I said, I had about four or five friends who were part of the search and rescue team then, and many of them were out looking for me. We had a lot of really heartfelt reunions back there. Uh, they thought they were going to be recovering my body, and actually I showed up and had a beer with them. One of my friends asked me, like, how did you make it out there last night? I mean, were you really cold? It was snowing. And I said, yeah, well, you know, I had this little fire. I kind of felt like a cowboy sleeping around my fire with my gun. And every once in a while I would get a cramp, you know, like I was cramping up. So I would take some of the hot stones and put them under my back or to keep warm or keep my cramps down. And, you know, a couple of times I woke up shivering at night and I had to put another log or two on the fire. My buddy looks at me and goes, Woke up last night? Like, you slept last night? Because nobody here at camp slept last night, but you did? So they were a little, a little annoyed with me. <laughs> I had a much better night than they did. I wasn't as worried as they were. In retrospect, would there have been any way to get in touch with them sooner? I ran into one guy who had a GPS locator. His friend had the same one, and they had them linked together where they had a topographic map on a screen and a little red blinking dot where they were, each of them. And they could also send a text message to each other through that device because it uses satellite technology, not uh, cell phone technology. So something like that would really be a great investment, I think. But I'd have to get all my friends to get them too. It was a tremendous learning experience. And uh, the only thing that would have made it just a little better would be if I had actually gotten an elk on the way out, that would have kind of made it worthwhile, but uh, it didn't happen. We just couldn't believe that he had hiked that far. Our search area didn't even consider the possibility that he would go all the way to the highway um, by the Hatchet Resort. He completely blew out of the search area. That's one of the classic things in search planning is, um, you know, you sort of draw draw the area of, of where you think the person probably traveled in the amount of time since they were last seen. When it feels too big, it's probably usually still too small because um, a lot of people a lot of people bust out of it, and you never think that somebody would have been walking the entire time since the point last seen. But this is a perfect example of if you just start walking in one direction and keep walking in that direction for 24 hours, basically, then you, you can go quite a ways. We don't have unlimited resources to allocate to the search. So the reason we have to make some assumptions and, and assign probabilities to areas is because we have to decide where to send. You know, even though we've got a bunch of volunteers who are happy to show up, that's that's still only, you know, maybe 30 people. And, you know, we're talking about, you know, if you, if you talk about a 25 mile radius, that's, that's a lot of area. Um, you know, for him to have the awareness that, you know, if you, if you keep walking downstream, 
whether it's a stream or a road, it's gonna feed into a bigger road and a bigger stream. And ultimately you're gonna get somewhere where you're going and to have enough awareness to know that he really was bound on all sides by roads. Some of them were closer than others. And he unfortunately was going to the one that's probably the farthest away. Um, but you know, if he just kept, if he just kept going in that direction, he was gonna, he was gonna get there. And... I mean, it was amazing. I definitely remember being in shock, but then thinking to myself, how cool is it that this guy self-rescued oh. and he had the courtesy to come and tell us that he was fine. And he took a taxi. It probably cost him 300 bucks. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, I love it hearing when people self-rescue. We're here for people when they can't, but it's awesome when people are able to do that. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.